26. Panages, the Eastern Hemisphere, as we have seen, enjoys this advantage over the Western, still more the Northern Hemisphere, blessed with an abundance of land and a predominant temperate zone location, is able to lord it over the Southern, so insular in its poverty of land. The history of the Northern Hemisphere is marked by far-reaching historical influences and wide control, that of the Southern, by detachment, aloofness and impotence, due to the small area and isolation of its land masses. A subordinate role is its fate. Australia will always follow in the train of Eurasia. Once alone it has derived its incentives and means of progress. Neither the southern half of Africa nor South America has ever in historical times struck out a road to advancement and aided by its northern neighbors. Primitive South America developed the only independent civilization that ever blossomed in the southern hemisphere. But the Peruvian achievements in progress were inferior to those of Mexico and Central America. The subordination of the southern continents is partly due to the fact that they have only one side of contact or neighborhood with any other land. That island on the north, yet even here the contact is not close. In Australia the medium of communication is a long bridge of islands, in America, a winding island chain and a mountainous isthmus, in Africa, a broad zone of desert dividing the Mediterranean or Eurasian from the tropical and negroid part of the continent. Intercourse was not easy and produced clear effects only in the case of Africa. Enlightenment filtering in here was sadly dimmed as it spread. Moreover it was delayed till the introduction from Asia of the horse and camel, which were not native to Africa, and which, as Ratzel points out, alone made possible the long journey across the Sahara, the opposite or peninsular sides, running out as great spurs from the compactor land masses of the north, look southward into vacant wastes of water, find no neighbors in those Antarctic seas owing to this unfavorable location on the edge of things, they were historically dead until four centuries ago, when oceanic navigation opened up the great sea route of the southern hemisphere, and for the first time included them in the world's circle of communication, but even when lifted by the ensuing Europeanizing process, they only emphasized the fundamental dependence of the southern hemisphere upon the superior geographical endowments of the northern. The build of the land masses influences fundamentally the movements and hence the development of the races who inhabit them. A simple continental structure gives to those movements a few simple features and a wide monotonous distribution which checks differentiation. A manifold, complex build, varied in relief and ragged in contour, breaks up the moving streams of peoples, turns each branch into a different channel, lends it a distinctive character through isolation finally brings it up in a cul-de-sac formed by a peninsula or mountain rim basin, where further movement is checked and the process of local individualization begins. Therefore great simplicity of continental build may result in historical poverty, as in the flat quadrangle of European Russia, the level plateau of Africa, and the smooth Atlantic slope of North America, with its neatly trimmed outline. Complexity, abounding in contrasted environments tends to produce a varied wealth of historical development. Africa lies on the surface of the ocean, a huge torso of a continent, headless, memberless, inert. Here is no diversity of outward form, no contrast of zonal location, no fructifying variety of geographic conditions. Humanity has forgotten to grow in its stationary soil, only where the Suez Isthmus formed an umbilical cord uniting ancient Egypt to the mother continent of Asia was Africa vitalized by the pulse of another life. European influences penetrated little beyond the northern coast. Asia, on the other hand, radiating great peninsulas, festooned with islands, supporting the vast corrugations of its highlands and lowlands, 
its snow-capped mountains and steaming valleys, stretching from the equator through all the zones to the ice-blocked shores of the Arctic, knowing drought and deluge, tundra-laced and teeming jungle, has offered the manifold environment and segregated areas for individualized civilizations, which have produced such far-reaching historical results. The same fact is true of Europe, and that in an intensified degree, here a complex development of mountains and highlands built on diverse axes, peninsulas which comprise 27%, and islands which comprise nearly 8%, of the total area, vast thalassic inlets cleaving the continent to the core, have provided in abundance of those naturally defined regions which serve as cradles of civilization and, reacting upon the continent as a whole, endowed it with lasting historical significance, even Strabosaurus. He begins his description of the inhabited world with Europe, because, as he says, it has such a polymorphous formation and is the region most favorable to the mental and social ennoblement of man. In North and South America, great simplicity of continental build gave rise to a corresponding simplicity of native ethnic and cultural condition. There is only one marked contrast throughout the length of this double continent, that between its Atlantic and Pacific slopes, on the Atlantic side of the Cordilleras, a vast trough extends through both land masses from the Arctic Ocean to Patagonia, this has given due migration in each a longitudinal direction and therefore constantly tended to nullify the diversities arising from contrasted zonal conditions. On the Pacific side of North America, there has been an unmistakable migration southward along the accessible coast from Alaska to the Columbia River, and down the great intermontane valleys of the western highlands from the Great Basin to Honduras while South America shows the same meridional movement for 2.000 miles along the Pacific coast and longitudinal valleys of the Andes system, there was little encouragement to cut across the grain of the continents. The eastern range of the Cordilleras drew in general a dividing line between the eastern and western tribes, though at the Pascans from the east overstepped it at a few points in North America. The Great Divide has served effectually to isolate the two groups from one another and to draw that line of linguistic cleavage which Major Powell has set down in MS Map of Indian Linguistic Stocks. Consequently, Americanists recognize a distinct resemblance among the members of the North Atlantic group of Indians, as among those of the South Atlantic group, but they note an equally distinct contrast between each of them and its corresponding Pacific group. Nor is this contrast superficial, it extends to physical traits temperament and culture, and appears in the use of the vigesimal system of enumeration in primitive Mexico, Central America, among the Lingots of the Northwest Coast and the Eskimos also among the Chukchis and Inus of Asia, while in the Atlantic section of North America the decimal system, with one doubtful exception, was alone in use, to the anthropogeographer, the significant fact is that all the higher phases of native civilization are confined to the Pacific Slope group of Indians which includes the Mexican and Isthmian tribes, from the elongated center of advanced culture stretching from the Bolivian highlands northward to the Anahuac Plateau. The same type shades off by easy transitions through northern Mexico and the Pueblo country, vanishes among the lower intrusive stocks of Oregon and California, only to reappear among the Haidas and Lingots of British Columbia and Alaska, whose cultural achievements show affinity to those of the Mayas in Yucatan now found certain distinguishing customs or characteristics spread north and south along the western slope of the continent in a natural geographical line of migration. They included labor tea-free, tattooing the chin of adult women, certain uses of masks, a certain style of conventionalizing natural objects, the use of conventional signs as hieroglyphics, 
a peculiar facility in carving wood and stone, a similarity of angular designs on their pottery and basketry, and of artistic representations connected with their common religious or mythological ideas, many singular forms of carvings and the method of superimposing figures of animals one upon another in their totem poles are found from Alaska to Panama, except in California. These distinguishing features of an incipient culture are found nowhere else in North America, even sporadically. Dow therefore concludes that they have been impressed upon the American Aboriginal world from without, and on the ground of affinities, attributes their origin to Oceanica, Cyrus Thomas, on the basis of the character and distribution of the archaeological remains in North America, concurs in this opinion. He finds that these remains fall into two classes one east of the Rocky Mountain watershed and the other west, when those of the Pacific Slope as a whole are compared with those of the Atlantic Slope. There is a dissimilarity which marks them as the products of different races or as the result of different race influences. He emphasizes the resemblance of the customs, arts and archaeological remains of the west coast to those of the opposite shores and islands of the Pacific, and notes the lack of any resemblance to those of the Atlantic and finally leans to the conclusion that the continent was peopled from two sources, one incoming stream distributing itself over the Atlantic slope, and the other over the Pacific, the two becoming gradually fused into a comparatively homogeneous race by long continental isolation, yet these two sources may not necessarily include a transatlantic origin for one of the contributing streams, ethnic evidence is against such a supposition because the characteristics of the American race and of the archaeological remains point exclusively to affinity with the people of the Pacific. John Edward Payne also reaches the same conclusion, though on other grounds. The one strong segregating feature in primitive America was the Cordilleras, which held east and west apart, in the natural pockets formed by the high intermontane valleys of the Andes and the Anahuac Plateau, and in the constricted Isthmian region. The continent afforded a few secluded localities where civilization found favorable conditions of development, but in general, the paucity of large coast articulations, and the adverse polar or subpolar location of most of these, the situation of the large tropical islands along that barren Atlantic abyss, and the lack of a broken or varied relief, have prevented the Americas from developing numerous local centers of civilization, which might eventually have lifted the cultural status of the continents. It is necessary to distinguish two general classes of continental articulations, first, marginal dependencies, like the fringe of European peninsulas and islands, resulting from a deeply serrated contour, and second, surface subdivisions of the interior, resulting from differences of relief or defined often by enclosing mountains or deserts, like the Tibetan Plateau, the Basin of Bohemia, the Po River Trough, or the Sand Rim Valley of the Nile. The first class is by far the more important because of the intense historical activity which results from the vitalizing contact with the sea. But in considering coast articulations, anthropogeography is led astray unless it discriminates between these on the basis of size and location, without stopping to discuss the obvious results of a contrasted zonal location, such as that between Labrador and Yucatan, the Cola Peninsula and Spain. It is necessary to keep in mind always the effect of the scenal location. An outlying coastal dependency like Ireland has had its history impoverished by excessive isolation, in contrast to the richer development of England, Jutland, and Zealand in the same latitude, because these have profited from the closer neighborhood of other peripheral regions. So from ancient times, Greece has had a similar advantage over the Crimea, the Tunisian peninsula of North Africa over Spain, 
the Cotentin Peninsula of France over Brittany, and camped over Cornwall or Caithness in Great Britain, particulations on a vast scale, like the southern peninsulas of Asia, produce quite different cultural and historical effects from small physical subdivisions, like the fjord promontories and scurries of Norway and southern Alaska, or the finger peninsulas of the Peloponnesus. The significant difference lies in the degree of isolation which the two types yield. Large continental dependencies of the Asiatic class resemble small continents in their power to segregate, while overgrown capes like ancient Etika and Argolis or the more bulky Peloponnesus had their exclusiveness tempered by the mediating power of the small marine inlets between them. Small articulations, by making a coast accessible, tend to counteract the excessive isolation of a large articulation. They themselves develop in their people only minor or inner differentiations which serve to enrich the life of the island or peninsula as a whole, but do not invade its essential unity. The contrast in the history of Hellas and the Peloponnesus was due largely to their separation from one another, yet neither was able to make of its people anything but Greeks. Wales and Cornwall show in English history the same contrast and the same underlying unity. In discussing continental articulations, therefore, it makes a great difference whether we draw our deductions from small projections of the coast like Wales, the Peloponnesus, Brittany and the Crimea, whose areas range from 7442 to 10.023 square miles 19.08 to 225.700 square kilometers, or the four Mediterranean peninsulas, which range in size from the 58.110 square miles 149.000 square kilometers of the Apennine Peninsula to the 197.600 square miles 506. 600 square kilometers of Asia Minor and the 227.700 square miles 584.000 square kilometers of the Iberian, or the vast continental alcoves of southern Asia, like farther India with its 650.000 square miles 1.667.000 square kilometers. Hither India with 814.320 square miles to 0.88.000 square kilometers and Arabia with 1.064.700 square miles to 0.730.000 square kilometers. The fact that the large compound peninsula of Western Europe which comprises Spain, Portugal, France, Jutland, Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, Italy and Western Germany and has its base in the stricture between the Adriatic and the Baltic, is about the size of peninsular India, suggests how profound may be the difference in geographic effects between large and small peripheral divisions. The three huge extremities which Asia thrusts forward into the Indian Ocean are geographical entities, which in point of size and individual is on rank just below the continents, and in relation to the solid mass of Central Asia, they have exhibited in many respects an aloofness and self-sufficiency that have resulted in an historical divergence approximating that of the several continents. India, which has more productive territory than Australia and a population not much smaller than that of Europe, becomes to the administrators of its government, the continent of India, as it is regularly termed in the statistical Ellis published at Calcutta. Farther India has in the long-drawn pendant of Malacca a sub-peninsula half as large again as Italy. The Deccan has in Ceylon an insular dependency the size of Tasmania. The whole scale is continental. It appears again somewhat diminished. In the largest articulations of Europe, in Scandinavia, the British Isles, the Iberian and Balkan peninsulas, 
This continental scale stamps also the anthropogeography of such large individualized fields. They are big enough for each to comprise one or even several nations, and isolated enough to keep their historical processes for long periods at a time to a certain extent detached from those of their respective continents. The most favorable conditions for historical development obtain where the two classes of marginal articulation are combined, and where they occur in groups, as we find them in the Mediterranean and the North Sea Baltic Basin. Here the smaller indentations multiply contact with the sea, and provide the harbors, bays and breakwaters of capes and promontories which make the coast accessible. The larger articulations, by their close grouping, break up the sea into the minor thalassic basins which encourage navigation and thus ensure the exchange of their respective cultural achievements. In other words, such conditions present the preeminent advantages of the scenal location around an enclosed sea. The enormous articulations of southern Asia suffer from their paucity of small indentations, all the more because of their vast size and subtropical location. The Grecian type of peninsula, with its broken shoreline, finds here its large-scale homologue only in farther India to which the Sunda Islands have played in history the part of a gigantic cyclones. The European type of articulation is found only about the Yellow Japan Sea, where the island of Hondo and the peninsulas of Shantun and Korea reproduce approximately the proportions of Great Britain, Jutland and Italy respectively, Arabia and India, like the angular shoulder of Africa which protrudes into the Indian Ocean, measure an imposing length of coastline, but this length shrinks in comparison with the vast area of the peninsulas. The contour of a peninsula is like the surface of the brain, in both it is convolutions that count. Southern Asia has had lobes enough but too few convolutions. For this reason, the northern Indian Ocean, despite its exceptional location as the eastward extension of the Mediterranean route to the Orient, found its development constantly arrested till the advent of European navigators. Although the peripheral articulations of a continent differ anthropogeographically according to their size, their zonal and vicinal location, yet large and small, arctic and tropical, are grouped indiscriminately together in the figures that state the length of coastlines. For this reason, statistics of continental coastlines have little value. For instance, the fact that Eurasia has 67.000 miles 108.000 kilometers and North America 46.500 miles 75.000 kilometers of contact with the ocean is not illuminating. These figures do not reveal the fact that the former has its greatest coastal length on its tropical and subtropical side, while the latter continent has wasted inlets and islands innumerable in the long, bleak stretch from Newfoundland poleward around to Bering Sea. Peninsulas are accessible from the sea according to the configuration of their coasts, but from their hinterland, according to the length and nature of their connection with the same, this determines the degree of their isolation from the landmass. If they hang from the continent by a frayed string, as does the Peloponnesus, Crimea, Malacca, Indian Gujarat, and Nova Scotia, they are segregated from the life of the mainland almost as completely as if they were islands. The same effects follow where the base of a peninsula is defined by a high mountain barrier, as in all the Mediterranean peninsulas, in the two Indias, and in Korea, or by a desert like that which scantily links Arabia to Egypt. Syria and Mesopotamia, or by a blur of swamps and lakes such as half detaches Scandinavia, Kurland, Island, and Finland from Russia, held to their continents by bonds that often fail to bind, subjected by their outward-facing peripheral location to every centrifugal force, feeling only slightly the pull of the great central mass behind, 
peninsulas are often further detached economically and historically by their own contrasted local conditions, a sharp transition in geological formation and therefore in soil, a difference of climate, rainfall, drainage system, of flora or fauna, serve greatly to emphasize the lack of community of interests with the continental interior, and therefore produce an inevitable diversity of historical development. Hence, many peninsulas insulate their people as completely as islands. It is hard to say whether the Pyrenean Peninsula or Sicily, Scandinavia or Great Britain, has held itself more aloof from the political history of remaining Europe, whether Korea is not more entitled to its name of the Hermit Kingdom than island Japan could ever be, whether the Peloponnesus or Euboea was more intimately associated with the radiant life of ancient Hellas. These questions lead to another, namely, whether a high mountain wall like the Pyrenees, or a narrow strait like that of Messina is the more effective geographical boundary. Peninsulas not infrequently gain in breadth as they approach the continent, here they tend to abate their distinctive character as lobes of the mainland, together with the ethnic and historical marks of isolation. Here they form a doubtful boundary zone of mingled continental and peninsular development. Such peninsulas fall naturally, therefore, into a continental and a peninsular section and reveal this segmentation in the differentiated history of the two portions. That great military geographer Napoleon distinguished the Italy of the Po Basin as Italicontinentale, and the Apennine section as Prescile. Not only is the former broader, but, expanding like a tree trunk near the ground, it sends its roots well back into the massive interior of the continent, it is dominated more by the Alps than by the Apennines, it contains a lowland and a river of continental proportions for which there is no space on the long, narrow spur of southern Italy. If its geographical character approximates that of the mainland, so does its ethnic and historical. The Po Basin is a well-defined area of race characterization, in which influences have made for intermixture. South of the crest of the Apennines the Italian language in its purity begins, in contrast to the Gallo-Italian of the north. This mountain ridge has also held apart the dark, short dolichocephalic stock of the Mediterranean race from the fairer, taller, broad-headed Celts, who had moved down into the Po Basin from the Alps, and the Germans and Illyrians who had entered it from the northeast. Northern Italy is therefore allied ethnically, as it has often been united politically, to the neighboring countries abutting upon the Alps, so that it has experienced only in a partial degree that detachment which has stamped the history of the Apennine section. The Balkan Peninsula tells much the same story of contrasted geographic conditions and development in its continental and peninsular sections. Greece proper, in ancient as in modern times, reached its northern confines where the peninsula suddenly widens its base through Macedonia and Thrace. In this narrow southern section today, especially in isolated Peloponnesus, Etica, and the high-walled Garden of Thessaly, are found people of the pure, long-headed, Hellenic type and here the Greek language prevails, but that broad and alien north, long excluded from the Amphictyonic Council and a stranger to Aegean culture in classical times, is occupied today by a congeries of Slavs, who form a southwestern spur of the Slav stock covering Eastern Europe. Its political history shows how often it has been made a Danubian or continental state, by Alexander of Macedon, by the Romans, Bulgarians, and Ottoman Turks as it may be some day by Russia, and also how often its large and compact form has enabled it to dominate the tapering peninsular section to the south. In the same way, the vast Ganges and Indus basins, which constitute the continental portion of India, have received various Tibetan, Scythian, Aryan, Patan, 
and Mongol Tartar ingredients from Central Asia, and by reason of the dense populations supported by these fruitful river plains, it has been able to dominate politically, religiously and culturally the protruding triangle of the Deccan. See maps pages 8 and 102. The continental side of Arabia, the Mesopotamian Valley which ties the peninsula to the highlands of Persia and Armenia, has received into its Semitic stock constant infiltrations of Turanian and Aryan peoples from the core of Asia. This process has been going on from the ancient Elamite and Persian conquests of Mesopotamia down to the Ottoman invasion and the present periodic visits of Kurdish shepherds to the pastures of the Upper Tigris. Here we have the same contrast of geographic conditions as in Italy and India, a wide, populous alluvial plain occupying the continental section of the peninsula, and a less attractive highland or mountainous region in the outlying spur of land. These continental sections of peninsulas become therefore strongly marked as areas of ethnic characterization and differentiated historical development. Their threshold location, by reason of which they first catch any outward migration from the core of the continent, and their fertility, which serves as a perennial lure to newcomers, whether peaceful or warlike, combine to give them intense historical activity. They catch the come and go between their wide hinterland and the projection of land beyond the stimulus of new arrivals and fresh blood, but tragedy too is theirs. The Po Valley has been called, the cockpit of Europe, even the Little Eider, which marks the base of Jutland, has been the scene of war between Danes and Germans since the 10th century. The Indus Valley has again and again felt the shock of conflict with invading hordes from the central highlands, and witnessed the establishment of a succession of empires. Peace at the gates of the Balkan Peninsula has never been of long duration and the postern door of Korea has been stormed often enough. In contrast to these continental sections which stand in contact with the solid land mass behind, the extremities of the peninsulas are areas of isolation and therefore generally of ethnic unity. They often represent the last stand of displaced people pressed outward into these narrow quarters by expanding races in their rear. The vast triangle of the Deccan, which forms the essentially peninsular part of India, is occupied except in the more exposed northwest corner, by the Dravidian race which once occupied all India, and afterward was pushed southward by the influx of more energetic peoples. Here they have preserved their speech and nationality unmixed and live in almost primitive simplicity. In the peninsular parts of Great Britain, in northern Scotland, Wales and Cornwall, we find people of Celtic speech brought to bay on these remote spurs of the land, affiliating little with the varied folk which occupied the continental side of the island and resisting conquest to the last. The mountainous peninsula of western Connaught in Ireland has been the rocky nucleus of the largest Celtic-speaking community in the island. Brittany, with a similar location, became the last refuge of Celtic speech on the mainland of Europe, the seat of resistance to Norman and later to English conquest. Finally the stronghold of conservatism in the French Revolution. The northern wall of the Apennines and the outpost barrier of the Alps have combined to protect peninsular Italy from extensive ethnic infusions from the direction of the continent. This portion of the country shows therefore, as the anthropological maps attest, a striking uniformity of race. It has been a melting pot in which foreign elements, filtering through the breaches of the Apennines or along the southern coast, have been fused into the general population under the isolating and cohesive influences of a peninsular environment. The population of the Iberian Peninsula is even more unified, probably the most homogeneous in Europe. Here the long-headed Mediterranean race is found in the same purity as in island Corsica and Sardinia, 
Spain's short line of contact with France and its sharp separation by the unbroken wall of the Pyrenees robs the peninsula of any distinctly continental section, and consequently of any transitional area of race and culture, hence the unity of Spain as opposed to that twofold balanced diversity which we find in Italy and India, the Balkan Peninsula. On the other hand, owing to the great predominance of its continental section and the confused relief of the country, has not protected its distinctively peninsular or Greek section from the southward migrations of Slavs, Albanians, Wallachians, and other continental peoples. It has been like a big funnel with a small mouth, the pressure from above has been very great. Hellas and even the Peloponnesus have had their peninsularity impaired and their race mixed, owing to the predominant continental section to the north. Peninsulas, so far as they project from their continents, are areas of isolation but so far as they extend also toward some land beyond, they become intermediaries. The isolating and intermediary aspects can be traced in the anthropogeographical effects of every peninsula, even those which, like Brittany and Cornwall, project into the long uncharted waste of the Atlantic. In the order of historical development, a peninsula first isolates, until in its secluded environment it has molded a mature, independent people, then, as that people outgrows its narrow territory, the peninsula becomes a favorable base for maritime expansion to distant lands, or becomes a natural avenue for numerous reciprocal relations with neighboring lands beyond. Korea was the bridge for Mongolian migration from continental Asia to the Japan Islands, and for the passage thither of Chinese culture, whether intellectual, aesthetic, industrial or religious. It has been the one country conspicuous in the foreign history of Japan, conquered by the island empire in 1592. It paid tribute for nearly three centuries and yielded to its foreign master the southeastern port of Fusan, the Calais of Korea. Since the Treaty of Portsmouth in 1905 made it subject to Japan, it has become the avenue of Japanese expansion to the mainland and the unwilling recipient of the modern civilization thrust upon it by these English of the East. In like manner the Pyrenean Peninsula has always been the intermediary between Europe and Northwest Africa, its population, as well as its flora and fauna group with those of the southern continent. It has served as transit land between north and south for the Carthaginians, Vandals and Saracens, and in modern times it has maintained its character as a link by the Portuguese occupation of the Tangiers Peninsula in the 15th century, and the Spanish possession of Ceuta and various other points along the Moroccan coast from the year 709 AD to the present. This role of intermediary is inevitably thrust upon all peninsulas which, like Spain, Italy, Greece, Asia Minor, Arabia, Farther India, Malacca, Chukchian Siberia, and Alaska, occupy an intercontinental location, Arabia Espec, 